Hey everybody, I hope you're having a great day from wherever it is that you're listening to my voice. This episode of the podcast is with former Surfing Magazine editor and X-Files creator Chris Carter. Chris is a family friend, I've known him for a long time, and he's someone who's had a big influence on my life. Maybe bigger than he even knows. Way back when I was 18 years old, and I decided to make my first micro-documentary on the importance of keeping our money in local banks and credit unions, Chris was one of the first people to support that project. He was one of the first people to provide feedback for me. And being an 18-year-old kid and having Chris Carter make time for you is important. And in retrospect, it gave me a lot of confidence that I needed at that time to continue down the path of documentary film. So thank you, Chris. We recorded this podcast in Jerry Bruckheimer's edit studio in Los Angeles. Uh, And I really enjoyed the conversation. This podcast is supported by listeners like you. So if you get value out of this show, head over to my website, kyle.surf. Not kyle.surf.com, just kyle.surf. And you can donate through Patreon. Thank you to Jamie Mitchell for supporting the podcast on Patreon this week. High five, Jamie. Jamie is a former podcast guest. He was one of the first people who I sat down with. I want to say episode six or seven so you can go back there and listen to that one if you're interested if you don't have cash to support the podcast i totally get it there are a bunch of other ways that you can support the show just giving the podcast a rating on itunes sharing it with a friend going to my website and clicking the amazon link to buy your amazon stuff really helps i'm an amazon affiliate so you can support the show at no cost to you just by using that link and bookmarking it All right, there is a garbage truck going by right now, and I'm afraid it's going to mess up the audio. So without further preamble, I bring you Chris Carter. Kyle Cameron here. I'm in Cape Town. I was the only journalist in northern Nigeria. Not an adventure until you get lost in Tijuana. You get caught inside by a giant wave, you feel really alone. I love the adventure of waking up and not knowing what will happen and that being my job. I'm standing at a desert oasis right now. A lot of tourists don't see this part of Bali. Smiles and thumbs up. Thumbs up. So do you keep your finger uh, on the pulse of surfing? You know, I kind of. Uh, I have friends who work at Surfline, so I, you know, I take a peek at Surfline. Uh, I, I can't even say semi-regularly, but I, I kind of check in, uh, see what's going on. Uh, you know, if there's the coconut wireless, so you hear, you know, what's going on uh, generally. Um but no, I, since I left the magazine, you know, my focus has been elsewhere, uh, but I'm still a surfer. Yeah. Yeah. And um, do you still take surf trips? Yeah. Where do you, where's your main surf trips that you go well, on? You know, I was go, uh, the X-Files ended in 2002, and uh, I was about 45 years old, and I said I still have some of my, you know, 
physical youth left. And so I went on a bunch of surf trips. I went to Scorpion Bay. I went to the Mentawise a couple times. Um, where else did I go? I went to Sumba. Uh, so I traveled around surfing. And uh, it's funny. Uh, I had spent roughly uh, a decade, a little bit more of my life not surfing. So that was an interesting thing. Uh, you know, you go from being, you know, I've always been, I'll, I'll call myself an average surfer, but when you take 10 years off, you know, it's, it's hard getting back into it. And when, it, and actually when the, uh, I, I would, uh, get to surf so infrequently when I was doing the X-Files, you know, it was work, 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 11 and a half months a year. And just, it's just a, a total grind. And, uh, so that's what I did, and I surfed only when I could. And of course, I never even got to surf when the waves were good. So uh, sometimes it can simplify things, though. Uh, I mean, what what it does, though, I mean, it, it erodes your abilities. Right? You yeah, know? I'm and, looking at the bright side right. here. So <laughs> during dur- during the run of the show, I think it was right before the ninth season of the show. Uh, I went on a Mentawai trip with uh, really good surfers. I went with Dan Malloy. I went with uh, Rizal Tanjung, uh, June Joe, uh, and uh, Ryan Hurley, and his dad, Bob Hurley, and my friend Aaron Chang, photographer. And it was like I went with, like, these super surfers. <laughs> and it was, like, so, uh, you know, it... it it brings you right down to earth. I mean, you realize your abilities are not anywhere near their abilities. And so, uh, it, you know, it, it, uh, it focused me. And this is in the Mentawise? This is in the Mentawise. People don't know this about the Mentawise, but most of the waves there are fucking heavy, too. It, it's, you know, <laughs> it, it's a serious surf place. And, uh, you know, you surf these places like Lance's Rights and uh, even Macaroni's, which everyone talks about as like the perfect hot dog wave. You know, outside, it's a it's a gnarly wave. Yeah, macaroni's when it gets bigger, it doesn't get taller; it just gets thicker. Right. <laughs> and I remember, I remember this. I remember paddling out at macaroni's and having seen all these videos of Kelly Slater and the Young Guns. I'm going to go do a bunch of 360 years at macaroni's. This is going to be great. And on my first wave, I remember paddling, and the thing doubled up and just started <laughs> like the ocean sucked dry right. beneath me, and I just <laughs> airdropped, lost my back. <laughs> fins and went head over heels and got pinned to the reef <laughs> right and luckily i was okay and it only resulted in uh some good lime back lime on the back which my brother um jumped at the opportunity to do but um but yeah a lot of those waves are right. thick and and shallow and i see a lot of people who go to the mentoy islands who i can tell are doctors or lawyers and this is their one trip a year and i I always say, like, man, you could get so much more bang for your buck if you were to just go down to a nice yeah. point break in Mexico it, it, or exactly, something. Exactly. I, I really agree. Uh, I spent a lot of time pinned to the reef. <laughs> it's like one of my first uh, go outs was, uh, you know, a kind of obscure reef break that we sort of uh, went. We took the little boat off the main boat and went to this break. And it's like you're in the middle of nowhere. You are in a primitive, savage place. And I found myself standing in like two feet of water with like eight feet of white water washing over me thinking that I paid all this money and spent all this time to actually find myself standing on a reef, you know, with reef cuts 
uh, figuring out how I was going to get back to the channel. It's absolutely as frightening to surf a shallow reef break as it is to surf a deep water big yeah. wave. Yeah. I mean, because there's just nothing you can do. I'll take your word for it. I mean, well, at least surfing big waves, there's, um, if you're getting held down, there's something that you can do. There's a mental space that you can go right. into. And more, more likely than not, if you just relax, you're going to be okay. Yeah. But if you have eight feet of white water coming at you and you're on dry reef and you realize that you are in the middle of nowhere... Like there's no happy thought that you can, that's just going to get you through it. It's like the most critical timing of your life is in those three seconds. It, it, exactly. I mean, you you're thinking about absolutely nothing else but your existence at that moment. Oh man! Well, it's great that you got to take a few surf trips yep. on the break there. And when you when you're in it, when you're in X Files mode, is it just bring me into that world? a little bit. I'm sure it's a million things, but what are some of the main tasks that you, um, do? Right. Uh, it, I, I've tried to simplify it to the, I do five things every day. Uh, I am coming up with an idea for an episode or a script. I am, uh, also the second thing would be plotting the idea that I came up with. The third thing I do is I write the idea that I just plotted. The fourth thing that I do is I film the idea that I just wrote. And the fifth thing that I do is I uh, then finish, post, produce the thing that I just shot. Uh, and you're doing those five things every day. And you're doing a hundred more things, but this, simply that's what you're doing. And uh, you're doing it you know, five working days a week, but you're doing it seven days a week if you really want to be any, any good at it. Uh, so it's, uh, you know, you do that when you're doing 23 or 22 to 25 episodes. You're doing that 11 and a half months a year. How do you uh, write down an idea? Is there a time of the day when an idea comes to you more frequently? No. Like, uh, you know, not like just, when I, you're I, like pooping in the morning and it right. just comes you, like, all right, guys, know, I've got that's, it. <laughs> that's that's always a, a good time for, you know, deep thoughts. Uh, <laughs> um no, you know, ideas come to you when you when you're reading. Uh, something happens, uh, you know, or something happens. You hear something, you put two and two together. Oftentimes, ideas uh, are not just one thing. There are many things that kind of synthesize. Uh, finding a good X Files idea often starts in science. So you read stories about science, uh, and then the science fiction is built on top of the science. Um, that's kind of a a little bit of a formula that. Uh, you could apply to the show. Um, yeah. Is there an example that you can think of? Uh, recently, I was interested in the idea of doubles, doppelgangers. And uh, so I watched some movies about doppelgangers. And uh, then I thought, how would I want to approach doppelgangers uh, as it relates to the X-Files? And I, th I started thinking about things about the X-Files I've never explored one of the things I never explored is a kind of symmetry the show has. Uh, Mulder, uh, the name Mulder has six letters, and the name Scully has six letters. And I started thinking about what the similarities were between those characters, their names, uh, what if they saw their own doubles. Uh, the idea kind of took shape 
as a result of uh, all my thinking about those things. Okay. And then how, and then do you just write that idea down as a, a potential narrative? Like you, the, the, they could be in this situation and we could bring this idea into it in this way or like, how does that actually. Right. So you have the happen? idea and then you sit, uh, in the way we've worked, uh, since the beginning, uh, and, um, all the writers except one right now, uh, works this way. We sit in front of a, uh, a big, um, cork board and, uh, we pin up three by five cards and, uh, we call it boarding and you plot the story on these three by five cards. Storyboarding. I get it. It is a storyboarding and, uh, it's old fashioned. I remember I was working with a guy from Amazon and he said, you know, we have digital ways to do this, but, there's something about writing the cards and the economy of trying to fit your story point, your plot point onto a three by five card. Uh, it becomes a, uh, a kind of art uh, in its own way. I would imagine. Yeah, because you have to also synthesize the idea down to a three by five card. You can't get as much writing down. Right. Is, is, is it handwritten as well? Handwritten. So you, you write that down. I, I was writing a, a card, uh, just last night and I wrote it down on my computer at first and then I transferred it to a handwritten card mm-hmm. and it took probably three times as much space up. Right. It's really amazing the economy that a computer will give you. But a lot of times the idea I would imagine can remain too complex. Right. Uh, you know, it's funny. I, I've always been interested in letters and letter forms and uh, when I worked for Surfing Magazine, I used to spec type and you, all the different typefaces. And when I was an art student, I took calligraphy classes. So I've always been interested in lettering. And so you'll find that the cards, uh, and this is really uh, a result of Glenn Morgan, a, a writer who worked on the show originally. He has very um, neat writing and his cards were very uh beautifully done and so uh, that kind of spoke to me and so my card I I try to make my cards as beautiful as he made his cards Uh, you know my writing is different but uh, the cards themselves are a thing of beauty and uh, we have a making of uh, documentary uh, of the show uh, this this time around and uh, it's going to focus on the cards uh, as a leaping off point for our ideas. Wow. Yeah. yeah, that's so cool. I've become more fascinated with calligraphy just since I've started a podcast, trying to figure out how to title my podcasts. Mm-hmm. Because you have one shot at it. I mean, you have one second as a person scrolling through their podcast. And if and it it really matters certain words pop out sure. and certain words are, have strength and certain words draw you in and certain words are just verbose in themselves mm-hmm. and um yeah it's fast that's a fascinating one for me as well do you think that that began when you were writing at surfing magazine yeah i mean it, it certainly uh was that was polished there uh, I was always interested in lettering and uh, architectural. I loved it, the way architects uh, wrote and uh, their letter forms. So uh, it came about as, you know, I worked with some really uh, fine people at Surfing Magazine who uh, took an, a, a real artistic approach to the job. And, you know, it was back in, you know, ancient times when we actually pasted up 
uh, text that we had to send out to a typesetter for. And now everything is done on computer now. People just don't understand. We had a, uh, a, a wax device where we would wax the back of the text, paste it up on these boards, and then you'd send it into the publisher. Uh, it is so far from uh, how things are done now. Are there any lessons that you learned from uh, calligraphy and the architecture of words mm-hmm. that you could impart? Well, you know, calligraphy is just really the uh, you know art of putting uh, of letter forms, uh, and uh, words are a completely different thing unto themselves. Although it's funny that uh, certain words lend themselves to certain kinds of. Uh, letter forms, uh, I think. Uh, anyway, but uh, I've always been interested in words. Uh, that's been a uh, fascination since I was a kid and probably why I'm a writer. Would you consider yourself a writer first and foremost? Yes. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> and uh, I'd like to dig into that process a little bit for yeah. purely selfish reasons yeah, as I'm right. um, working on my own writing. Um you just wake up in the morning, you come up with an idea, and then it gets on the screen? I'll tell you that uh, deadlines uh, turn you into a good writer. the writer that you uh, can be. That's what they all say. Uh, so setting yourself up deadlines has a lot to do with it. Uh, when you do a television show, you learn to write anywhere and everywhere. Uh, there are very funny photos of me sitting in parks surrounded by homeless people with my head down uh, looking at my laptop. Uh, so I learned, you know, how to write uh, all the time. Yeah. And, uh, you know, that's something that I don't do anymore, to be honest. I don't write after dinner. Uh, but uh, writing is a discipline. And uh, the physical act of writing is, is the discipline, of course, and having a disciplined mind and uh, having a curious mind and uh, constantly pushing yourself, seeing how other people, how the great writers do it, that's uh, a really good place to start. There are a lot of good ideas for shows, but I think that the X-Files, it hits something that is deeper within humans, and there's this kind of enigmatic feel to it. And I think that that comes from a, a, I would guess, a certain understanding that you have about humans. Um, can you speak to that at all? Well, it, you know, it's, I, I understand it, that it's an obtuse question, right. but there's just uh, there's something that I'm trying to get at yeah, here. Yeah, it's you know, it's it's got a uh, something that's simple about it, but uh, is a wonderful engine for producing and exploring stories. It's got a believer. And it's got a skeptic. And, uh, you know, all of us have equal parts of those things. Uh, and it's a pursuit of the truth. Uh, all of us have a uh, desire to, uh, to find the truth, to know the truth. And uh, the truth is maybe unfindable. Uh, the truth is, of course, right now is under assault. Uh, so, uh, you know, the mantra of the show is the truth is out there. I think that is uh, a lot of the show's uh, appeal. Where did that quest start for you? I, you know, it's as a writer, you've got, you know, it's funny. You, uh, you meet, when you meet a writer, that writer is really... Uh, I think, uh, choosing that profession because he or she has a particular take on the world. 
they have their own sense of justice. They are, have their own sense of truth, their own sense of beauty, their own sense of honor, their own sense of evil and good. And uh, this, this is something that they're exploring if they are, you know, uh, really uh, putting the pedal to the metal uh, in interesting ways. And uh, I've found, you know, I'm, I'm going to take this and, and as it applies to the X-Files, you know, we have a staff of writers and all of them have a different take on the show. I'm, I'm experiencing this right now. We are right now producing episode 209 of the show. I should say I'm, uh, I'm post-producing it right now. And uh, it's always amazing to me how, uh, and I'll, I'll digress a little bit from writing, but not just with writing, but with every uh position on the show everyone adds a little something special to it and while everyone needs to be making the same movie which is what a producer does he makes sure everyone's making the same movie everyone adds to it in their own uh way because everyone has a different take on the words that are written on those pages of that script and i would imagine that everyone either uh, lives in more of a skeptic skeptic world or a believer world and I would imagine also that it's like that's kind of what you're managing because if you're trying to manage that like duality between the skeptic and the believer and you're managing hundreds of people who can be uh, like threading that needle with you I would imagine that that's a a really interesting space to be in. Well, it's a, it, what's interesting is the show is both science and science fiction, and uh, it's always the science fiction that's you know uh, that wins the day. You know, Mulder is always right, and Scully is always wrong because he's pushing the limits of science, which is much more interesting than science itself. Although I'm interested in science, I'm a skeptic. So uh, I've always felt that Scully is the heart and soul of the show, not necessarily the heart and soul, but the heart of the show. She is the groundedness uh, of the show. Hard science is where the show is grounded. If it were Mulder just pursuing uh, loopy ideas, uh, it, it would be would be less interesting. Yeah, it would become untethered in a certain way where people couldn't ground themselves to something. Right. And talking about making sure that everyone is making the same movie, what do those conversations sound like? You know, they're everything. Uh, you know, it's uh, some, every story you see, every movie you see has a tone and that tone is, you know, f to simplify it, uh, comedic, dramatic, uh, the, the, the different genres, thriller, uh, there are, you know, uh, coming of age stories, but they all have to have a tone. And if that tone is not understood by someone who can impart that idea to everyone, you're going to get a lot of different tones at work. So, uh, while everyone adds to it, it there has to be someone, and it could be uh, a number of people, triumvirate, uh, who have a clear idea of what it is you're pursuing uh, with a group, group, in our case, of about 500 people who wake up every day and go to work on the show. <laughs> Damn. It's, so, I mean, are you, are you just like 
a dictator who like screams the tone from a top of a mountain or how, how, how do you do that? I'm the opposite. You're the opposite. Yeah. You know, and it's also come, it's a result of having done it for so long. Uh, there's, uh, I try to take the dramatic art we work in and make it as undramatic as possible in the, uh, process of doing it. Uh, screaming doesn't really work. Uh, shouting doesn't really work. Uh, what if you have a megaphone? You know, it, it is. You have to lead by example. You have to lead by example. You know, it's it, it's. Uh, you know, there are times to be intense, and there are times not to be intense. And so, intensity is the name of the game. It's just how you impart your uh, ideas and uh, how you lead people is all important to the you know to the goal. It, it, from what I've gleaned so far because you manage such a big group, it's so important for you to simplify. And you've done a really good job at simplifying what can seem really complex and I'm sure is very complex. You know, you do simplify, but you also part of the way you simplify is you keep hiring the same people over and over and you develop a shorthand with them. So uh, when you do that, you don't need to uh, impart the same... Uh, information sure time and time again sure yeah and who are the main people who you work with directly who you've worked with for a while uh a lot of the same directors a lot of the same writers uh same production designer same producer uh same casting uh people uh which is very important to our success people who understand our taste and what we're looking for can read the script understand exactly what we're going for uh you know, there are a lot of people uh, who have moved on to uh, uh, other positions uh, who I, you know, I employed as a uh, location manager and they're now producing or I employed them as a head of uh, construction and they're now uh, award winning producers. Wow. So is, it, is that someone who you can yeah. think of? Mm -hmm. Who Would you mind? Rob, Rob, Rob Mayer. This is a guy who works in uh, Vancouver who's just stepped up. And uh, a guy, you know, I can tell you plenty of stories like that. People who worked in craft service who have moved into, you know, that's uh, basically keeping everybody fed on the crew, uh, who have moved into positions of uh, tremendous responsibility. What did Rob do to ascend that ladder? He just had good taste. He was a hard worker. He developed, uh, people developed trust in him, that his ideas were good, that he could, uh, get people to from you know one place to another and uh do it uh economically and uh that's the name of the game yeah yeah i find that that's um that's important for people to hear i mean most of the a lot of people who listen to this podcast are in their 20s and 30s and motiv motivated young whippersnappers right. who want to ascend and i i find that there's a fear especially in the entertainment industry that you will get on that bottom rung and then you will get chewed up and spit out and there aren't those same places to ascend. But I think that it's good for people to hear that it is possible. You got to have a bunch of LaCroix at the ready. <laughs> LaCroix. 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 Uh, Chris, would you like a LaCroix? Yeah. <laughs> Your producer. Uh, yeah, you know, it's, you know, I just look at my own career and uh, I worked for, I have a degree in journalism. I worked at Surfing Magazine for five hardcore years. Uh, but, you know, the way I put myself through college 
was I was a potter. I sat at a potter's wheel. I was a production potter. I made literally tens of thousands of pieces of pottery in my life. And uh, it taught me a lot about production. And so now I'm working as a producer and I'm producing 20, not tens of thousands of things, but 22 things a year. And this, and right now I'm producing t- uh, 10 things a year. But it taught me a lot about uh, how to approach a job. And uh, it's very important if I'm speaking to a younger audience that you actually have an idea of how to begin something and finish something. Plenty of things are begun, but not that many things are finished. You've got to know that most of the time you're going to fail. Uh, that uh, the business I work in is a business of failure. Probably eight out of ten things fail. You got to figure out what you did wrong and pick it up and do it again. That's just the name of the game. Eight out of ten things fail. What do you mean by that? So eight out of ten television shows probably won't see their first year. Eight out of ten scripts probably won't even make it to the uh, pilot stage. Uh, so we're looking at, you know, a, a, a business that weeds out, uh, a lot, um, of fine efforts, uh, because they don't have magic. They don't have chemistry. They don't, they haven't found an audience, uh, you know, in the, uh, small sense of that at the studio or at the network level that, you know, the, what you've written doesn't find lovers. Uh, and sometimes what you have written does find a lover, but it doesn't find an audience. These are all things that you deal with when you are in the entertainment business in the way I am. Have you always thought about the audience from day one? You have to. Uh, you're in the entertainment business, and if you're not entertaining people, uh, you are not doing your job. So you think about who you're trying to reach, who you're, who you're entertaining, who you want to move, who you want to uh, tickle. Uh, all these things have to be considered. And how would you describe from the beginning when you were pitching X-Files, mm-hmm. what did those conversations sound like? You know, I was, uh, I think I was 35, 36 years old. Uh, I had a... In Hollywood? In Hollywood. And uh, had probably seven years of experience under my belt. So I, I knew a little bit about what I was doing. Uh, of uh, writing experience or of... Writing and producing. Okay. And uh, I had this idea. It came uh, uh, from, it really was inspired by a show that was on when I was a kid called Kolchak the Night Stalker, uh, which I loved. I thought it was one of the best things I'd ever seen and still is, actually. Uh, And I pitched the idea uh, with that in mind, even though it was uh, in so many ways dissimilar to that. But uh, the spirit of that show uh infused what i was doing do you remember that pitch meeting i there were two uh i failed on the first one i pitched it and they didn't buy the idea uh i was working with a guy who believed in the idea this is an executive peter roth and uh, he got us a second meeting. We pitched it again, and uh, whether to make me go away (laughs) uh to uh or, or take a, a, a chance, they, they bought it on the second pitch. Who was they? So I was at 20th uh, Century uh, Television, 
uh, as the producing studio, and I was pr- uh, pitching it to 20th Century Fox. So I was really walking up a flight of stairs to pitch it. It was a natural, you know, Fox for Fox. So, uh, of course, you had a more eager audience. Do you remember what that pitch sounded like, more or less? Uh I remember what the second pitch sounded like more than the first because I came in a little bit more prepared. I had some visual aids. I had uh, a survey that I had read that uh, was a scientific survey by a Harvard psych uh, professor, researcher, that said, uh, you know, roughly 10% of the American public believe in aliens and UFOs. Uh, This was a scientific uh, study done and so uh, I showed that you know there was uh, an appetite and an audience out there for it and then what did the pitch sound like like so kid you got an idea yeah you know it's I had this idea of this uh, uh, skeptic and this believer and they worked in the FBI and they worked I didn't have the title yet I didn't have the X-Files but they worked in a uh, part of the FBI that uh, dealt with paranormal phenomena Um that came as a result of something I had heard. Uh, the FBI had uh, done a, an investigation of satanic ritual abuse. It's something you read about, which sounds horrible. Where This is a real investigation. This, this is a real investigation. I thought if they're investigating satanic ritual abuse, they have to be investigating things that I'm interested in exploring, too. Uh, and there has to be a unit that does that. So uh, thus, the X-Files. So you told them that? And then did you also have your pilot episode ready or your first whole season nope, ready? No, nope. I just, it was a pitch out of thin air, uh, something I had in my mind, something I'd you know, made notes to myself on. I had originally pitched the idea to this guy, Peter Roth. He liked the idea. We took it in, pitched it, pitched it again. And uh, they said, okay, go ahead and write the pilot. Uh, you write the pilot. They read it. They liked it. They had some notes. Uh, they said, okay, now we want to make this uh, pilot into a you know, uh, an hour of television. Uh, so we took the script, went up to Vancouver, uh, made an hour of television, brought it back, you know, polished it up, showed it to them and they liked it. And, uh, we got a, uh, a series order, uh, that was in 1993. Uh, we debuted on September the 10th, 1993, uh, with an episode that it caught a little bit of fire. Uh, we had, uh, l- luckily, uh, good people had come to work with me and us, and uh, we did some interesting episodes after that, some really good episodes, some of the best episodes of the show. And uh, so uh, we developed a following and a hardcore audience, and uh, it was an interesting time to be producing television because it was when the Internet was brand new. And it's when people were in chat rooms and all of a sudden we found there was a lot of chatter about the show and we had a direct connection to that audience and we could listen to what they were saying and uh, what they liked about it and what they didn't like about it. Uh, So uh, we listened to that feedback and while we always trusted our gut instincts, uh, it was a a luxury to have instead of people sending their cards and letters in, uh, we had uh, feedback Immediately. Immediately, the minute after the show finished airing. And uh, it helped make the show what it has become. What kind of feedback was most helpful for you? You know, uh, uh, it's funny. The feedback that was most helpful for me 
was uh, about the characters, what people liked about the characters and their relationship, which was a completely platonic relationship. And then uh, uh, I actually received, uh, I'm going to... So they said they liked that it was a platonic relationship? Yeah, they liked the, they, they liked the way the characters uh, respected one another. Uh, and I think that actually is uh, a part of the great appeal of the show is that uh, Mulder treats Scully with respect and Scully treats Mulder with respect even though they believe completely different things. So uh, that's all important. But I have to say I got a snail mail letter uh, right around the end of the first season that spoke to all the things that this person liked about the show and didn't like about the show and how the show succeeded best and how it worked best when the characters were personally invested in the stories they were uh, involved in. And uh, I think that's uh, something that helped to really shape what we call the mythology of the show. The uh, episodes that involve, uh, in this, in our case, uh, Mulder's pursuit of a certain truth that came out of his childhood and belief that his sister was abducted and Scully uh, reining him in, pulling him back from that belief that there was no government conspiracy to hide the truth about aliens and extraterrestrials. Was it your decision to have Mulder and Scully be in a platonic relationship? Yes. Tell me about that. Well, I think it's just a danger. I mean, when soon as they enter a romantic relationship, and ultimately they did enter a romantic relationship, uh, but I, I think in an interesting way, uh, as soon as you uh, cross that bridge, uh, everything changes. Uh, their attitudes change towards one another. Their professional attitudes are shaped by their personal attitudes. And uh, if you go home with someone and uh, have a life with them, uh, and when you wake up and go to work with them, uh, how do you shift gears? Yeah. Well, and I would imagine that in Hollywood, in such an over-sexualized industry, right. there would be a lot of push for that immediately. And it would be kind of an easy, an easy thing to do. Yep. So I recognize the intentionality of yep. having their relationship remain platonic. It, it's like life itself, though. The best things are earned. And so they had to earn that uh, romantic relationship. How is it getting so much feedback? It's funny. I mean, like, how do you navigate? Well, now that? it's of course you you get more feedback than you want, uh, and uh, a lot of it uh, you you try to ignore because you know uh, we live in a world of haters, and uh, so uh, while there's an, uh, a segment of the audience that loves what you're doing, there's an, a segment of the audience that thinks they know better, and uh, are happy to tell you about it. And I would imagine that it's just the tone that makes the difference. If someone's willing to write a helpful line of feedback, then yeah. hell yeah, great. Thank you so much. Yes. But yep. if someone's just seething hate on their keyboard, fucking Chris Carter. Yeah. That would hurt. Well, it, I can you if to, you let it. You have to develop really thick skin and uh, you have to just trust your instincts. And that's what we've always done on the show is trust our instincts. Uh, do the best you can do for the time and the money and uh, live with it. The money. <laughs> so this is a really interesting thing because people, when there's such a successful show like X-Files, I would imagine that they think that like, oh, the money was just always there and it always came in. But I'm, I'm just guessing here that the reality of it is that you are constantly having to make financial choices to make the story work on whatever budget you're given. Right. 
you have time and money are the two competing, uh, or I should say contributing factors to what you can accomplish. Uh, you have a limited amount of time. These are finite resources and a limited amount of money. And so you spend your money as best you can and you capitalize, uh, and, uh, conserve your time, uh, uh, as best you can and uh, the end you know the end product is your best effort have you always been good at money management through episodes you know uh, no not particularly you know uh, we were I, I was always pushing for more 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 money more money we needed more money to make it good we needed more money to realize uh, these ideas that we were coming up with and I, I think that the early on, luckily, we had people who believed in us who said, okay, we're going to give you some more money because we think you've got something good. And it's those people, you know, if I'm going to credit a dozen people with the, uh, as the, the people most responsible for the success of the show those money people would be among them because they saw what we needed and they gave it to us. Can you give an example of that? Uh, a television budget is for an hour of television. The way I see it right now, you know, if it's game of Thrones, it's a lot more, but, uh, in the, uh, area that I work in, uh, which is broadcast television, uh, an episode of television costs between three and $5 million when we were producing this show originally in uh, 1993, of course, you know, those are 1993 dollars, but we had uh, about 25% of that. Uh, and we were being asked to make an hour of television just like we're doing now. So we were asked to do a lot with a little. Uh, and uh, we did that in the beginning, but uh, it soon became apparent that uh, to really do the job right uh, and to facilitate uh, good work, which is the name of the game, uh, you you needed to have uh, more money and more time. So what's an example of where when you don't have the budget or when you didn't have the budget, it would get, things would get cut and they wouldn't be as good. Right. Well, would it be like editors or like, like no, can't feed the editors. <laughs> no, you just, you know, it's, you have a script and if that script is not producible, you've got to cut it down. You've got to make compromises and it is a business of compromise and sacrifice. And so you learn to make those compromises and sacrifice. I actually, your uncle, Rick Carter, gave me really valuable advice before I set out to do the X-Files. I showed him the pilot script and he's, you know, worked with Steven Spielberg on, you know, he's an Academy Award winner and a production designer. And he had just production designed 44 episodes of uh, a show called Amazing Stories. And he, so he knew tell, uh, television and he knew what our television held he said and he said to me you're going to have a limited amount of time and you're going to have a limited amount of money and you've got to figure out how to scare people by not showing them things by keeping the scary things in the shadows and hearing the scary things not seeing them because you don't have money to show people and you don't have time to uh render those images anyway so it was extremely valuable advice before I ever set sail. And uh, to this day, that's one of the best ways to scare people. Keep it in the dark. Keep it in the dark. A lot cheaper to do it that way. Yes, it is. 
Wow. Yeah. Uh, Rick Carter definitely lives in the world of metaphors and the world of the unseen. Well, he's got to live in the world of the scene, of the, course. Yes, but, he's, like, but you know, he understands. He's a storyteller. He's yeah. a natural storyteller, so he understands uh, the uh, everything that goes into it. And he's worked with Steven Spielberg, who, in my mind, uh, may be the best director uh, in my lifetime. Uh, a person who is such a a brilliant and natural storyteller, always knows where to put the camera. Uh, has a just uh, an unerring sense of uh, realizing uh, what's important at any one moment visually and uh, texturally in a story. So um, a lot of people have seen Steven Spielberg's films, but maybe aren't seeing the same film as you, mm-hmm. as you're noticing the way that he's putting the camera angle. And right. w- what are some moments that you can think of where you can tell, oh, he made that decision and that was really important? Can you think of anything? Well, of course, not showing the shark in Jaws was uh, brilliant. You know, he keep that shark, you know, uh, off screen for as long as possible. It's scarier. And then when you finally see the shark, it has much more power and impact so uh, that's a simple example uh, but I just watch, I've, I've watched uh, his um, movie Munich which probably isn't one of his better known movies over and over and over because it relates to what I do on the X-Files it's a beautifully rendered movie and uh, uh, it uh, has the kind of storytelling that uh, visual storytelling that uh, speaks to me uh, in what I do in trying to uh, bring the X-Files mythology to life. In what way? You know, it's it's got a look that I like. It's got uh, an intensity that I like. It's got uh, a uh, gravity that I respond to. Whenever I show uh, or I tell uh, a DP uh Director of photography. Yes, director of photography. Uh, what I'm looking for in terms of a uh, a visual look uh, for the mythology episodes, and we uh, we're dealing with new director of, directors of photography now. I speak to that because I think that is a uh, a story and a movie that uh, you know it, it speaks to what we do. Are there certain camera angles that you are particularly drawn to? Well, I mean, there's yeah, that's a that's a conversation in itself. Right. You know, it's uh, it's angles, it's lens choices, it's uh, staging, it's uh, camera choreography, and uh, the blocking of a scene. All those things go into uh, telling a story, and uh, story. Oftentimes, the uh, it's the delivery of information, emotional, uh, but also uh, narrative. And what camera angles have you found to be, or, or just techniques have you found to be the most useful for you in X-Files, yeah. ones that you're continually drawn back to for one reason or another? You know, uh, the X-Files uh, demands a certain kind of storytelling. And, you know, once again, this is a, a much more uh, nuanced conversation than we have time uh, for here. Uh, but the X-Files... Um, demands a kind of storytelling that is a a cinematic approach. Uh, You can't stand back and watch 
the action happen. Uh, so it demands that you uh, tell the stories from a point of view, and most importantly, Mulder and Scully's point of view. And to develop point of view as a storyteller, you need to see what that person is seeing and what that person is reacting to, uh, which means you need to move the camera around a lot. Uh, so uh, you can't just point and shoot. You've got to choose your angles wisely. And actually, the show has become a director's show. It's If I'm going to credit uh, anyone equally for the success of the show, I'm going to credit the directors as much as the writers or producers. They are the people that rendered lovingly and beautifully what we set out to do. Yeah. For someone who just like goes to the cliff on Uluwatu, I'm like, hi, I'm here to talk about the trash <laughs> epidemic and I'm doing a selfie right now and blown out behind me. And then all of a sudden it's way too dark. We got good audio. We're okay. Right, right. This is a fascinating conversation for me to hear about. Yeah. Well, it's really hard, of course, when you're around the ocean, uh, developing any kind of continuity because the wind's ever changing. So you actually, yeah, right? you've got that noise, you've got, uh, you know, different conditions. You can't just go out on two different days and shoot the same thing and say, you know, this is the same day. It's, uh, you know, the, uh, it's a, the natural world. Yeah. Yeah. Surfing's hard to shoot. Yes. It's also hard to get good action yep. in, in surfing. I've seen other, um, uh, videographers go into surfing after having shot like skateboarding or something and they they're sitting there twiddling their thumbs thinking okay this guy's supposed to be good can he just do the trick already right, right. <laughs> so yeah I mean it's really pointing and, and shooting um, mostly but you see now people have been able to get uh, develop point of view uh, mm -hmm. with uh, you know uh, GoPros etc you know all of a sudden you see surfing from a completely uh, personal and subjective point of view. Yeah, and now with VR, there's a whole new right, point of view. Right, yep. Is that something that you're interested in? It is. It, it's, you know, it's funny. Uh, I heard Facebook just gave up their VR uh, project, and uh, I was curious about that. I think the what's elusive right now is figuring out uh, what kind of narrative story to tell, how to tell it, and using uh, VR... Uh, because it is so subjective. Right. Yeah. I th the coolest ones that I've seen so far have been just a stationary camera in a big event, like, um, like a disaster zone or something like that. Right. I've, I've seen some of those where you're looking around and then all of a sudden you really feel like you're in that space. And I think that that can provide a certain amount of empathy, but what you were talking about before with point of view and, and having the master do that job to give you what you should, what they want you to see and what they want you to feel, I think is a really cool aspect of film. And it's an aspect that I've avoided for a very long time, um, largely because my brother does film and that's his, his jam. He's always like, look at the, the new lens that I just got, Kyle, and I have this underwater housing. Yeah, we'll go to the cliffs right. to do Luwatu. Right, It'll right. be okay. Right. But um, I understand how important it is. And now I've I've worked on enough projects where the shooter has been good and had that, as you said, that same tone. Um, and it makes a completely different project. Yeah. 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 <laughs> so what's um, what's next for you? You're kind of going back and forth between yeah. L.A. and Vancouver. Yeah. So, you know, that's another thing is that we produced the show abroad for so many years. We're back in Vancouver, our kind of home away from home 
it's a great place to uh, make the X-Files because the X-Files takes place uh, basically in the uh, the area that the FBI works in, which is all around the United States, and Vancouver has the ability to double as all as as many places as you can imagine, except for the Southwest. And we've even turned uh, Vancouver, which is a very green uh, wooded place, uh, into the um, southwestern United States, which is a very arid and rocky place. Uh, we took a, uh, a gravel quarry and we used, I don't know, 10,000 gallons of red paint and uh, made the, uh, the desert of New Mexico. And from the beginning, you shot in Vancouver, is that right? We shot in Vancouver for five years and we came to L.A. for four years after that. Now we're back in Vancouver. Nice. And is that um, is there a decision on tax credits that you can get up there as opposed to L.A.? Or is it about the same? No, it, I think it has less to do with tax credits than it has to do with uh, the exchange on the dollar right now. Right. Uh, that's not the reason I go up there, by the way. You know, uh, it's the reason that studio likes to be up there because you hand them a dollar and they give you, you know, between a dollar and fifteen and dollar and a quarter back, uh, so they're able to do more for less. Uh, I go up there because I think there's a, uh, for me, a great work ethic. Uh, people that I worked with before, uh, and it has the ability to uh, double as so many places. But it also has something that I love, which I call free atmosphere. Uh, it's got a moodiness to it. It's got Most that fog. You've got uh, gray skies and low light. Yeah. Cool. And um, when is when are these new episodes set to yeah, air? They're set to air um, January 2018. What's your board quiver like these days? <laughs> uh, you know, my board quiver is varied. Uh, when it's small, I ride my long boards, and I have a number of them. Uh, when it's a little bit bigger or hollower, I ride my short boards or my fun boards. Uh, so I've got, I have got probably 40 surfboards in my garage. <laughs> That's my quiver. Nice, man. Well, uh, I wish you a great surf trip at the end of this whole shebang. Thanks. And thanks so much for taking the time to sit down. All right, Kyle. That's our show, ladies and gentlemen. I'm going to leave you with a song by one of my new favorite bands, Amadeu and Miriam. And this is a song called Jete Kifi. And I will link to their band underneath the show notes on my website, kyle.surf, under Chris's episode. I will also link to some of Chris's work. All right, coming up next, we've got a podcast with Mick Fanning. Oh, shit. So look out for that. And until then, have a great day. Choisissez bien vos amis
Je te touche, tu me touches en 